I want to confess to you there's a certain heaviness that I have in coming to this text. As a preacher, you find out there are some texts that are easier to preach. They flow easy, and man, they just grab your heart and mind. Last week was one of those texts. Verses 1 through 10 is a joy to preach. Verses 11 through 21 cause a heaviness of heart. And if as believers we read these verses and our hearts aren't heavy, there's not a sense of sorrow that may be a sign that we have become hard-hearted to what the judgment of God entails because these verses are frightening so as we read this let's, let's pray and seek God to give us eyes to understand to have a sanctified imagination in grasping the images and the picture that is drawn here. I'll begin in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Would you bow with me in prayer? Oh, Lord God, grant us grace this morning to, 
to flee to you. Father, grant us grace that we might understand your word. Father, grant us the grace this morning that we would be transformed by your word. That we would cling to Christ. Father, I believe that your word will accomplish the purpose for which you send it forth. So, Father, a fight against that purpose. But that your word would find willing servants this morning who are willing to hear and to obey. Father, grant this to the glory of your name we pray. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Quite an amazing thing took place on the shores of France on the dates between May 26 and June 4 in 1940. The German army had surprised the French and the British expeditionary force. They had cut across the Ardennes forest and had pushed south in a much unexpected maneuver. And this maneuver had sent the armies of France and Britain into retreat until they were pushed back to a very small portion of the nation of France, a portion called Dunkirk. And there on that beach, over 300,000 men were standing with the ocean before them and the German army behind them. There was nowhere else left to run. That's when the call went out through England. When every seagoing vessel that was able responded to the call to go and rescue the soldiers. Vessels ranging from destroyers to tugboats braved the Luftwaffe, braved the shelling to go and to rescue as many men as they possibly could. One British soldier by the name of Harry Garrett told about this. He said, you knew, you knew this was the chance to get home. And you kept praying, God, let us go, get us out, get us out of this mess back to England to see that ship that came in to pick me and my brother up, it was a most fantastic sight. We saw dogfights up in the air, hoping nothing would happen to us, and we saw one or two terrible sights. Then, somebody said, there's Dover. That was when we saw the white. But he did not call it a victory. He said, you do not win a war by evacuation. Now the reason I wanted to get that in our thinking is this. I think as believers, we look around and we feel trapped. We see the, the world in front of us on one side and behind us we feel the adversity of Satan. And we feel trapped and so our prayer becomes one of escape. And I think we have come to view the return of Jesus Christ only in terms of escape. God, get us out of here. And in doing so, our hope is watered down and we shortchange the victory that will belong to our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Revelation 19 tells us that when the Lord returns, 
It will not be just to bring about an escape. It will be to establish victory. It will be to deliver judgment. That's what the latter part of Revelation 19 is about. It is about the victory that comes through the judgment of God in Jesus Christ. Whereas verses 1 through 10 is a wonderful passage to preach and to dwell upon because it deals with the hallelujah, the victory of the Lamb, the joy celebration. Man, in verses 1 through 10, we are on the mountaintop of joy. And then in verses 11 through 21, we descend into the valley of judgment. Because just as the joy is exuberant in verses 1 through 10, judgment here is graphic it's a kaleidoscope of images that are shocking and disturbing because when the king arrives he does not come meekly or mildly he comes as the king who comes to bring judgment the warrior who will right the wrongs of this world now I know that speaking of judgment is not a pleasant thing today we wrestle with how can God be a God of love and judgment? And I want us to understand, first of all, two things. The love of God and the judgment of God are not opposites of one another. Miroslav Volf, who is a Croatian theologian, he writes about how he used to struggle with that. He used to struggle with how could God be love and also a God who brings judgment until he realized that judgment is an aspect of God's love. That if God did not love, he would not judge. What brought this home to him was seeing the atrocities in his own country. Where hundreds of thousands of people were killed and displaced. And he began to wonder, does God dote on the perpetrators of these wrongs as a grandfather dotes on his children? Surely not. Because God is love. And he loves his glory, his creation, his people. He does not turn a blind eye to wrongs. The second thing I would have us to remember is that God is a God of justice and righteousness. That's part of his character. Being made in the image of God, you and I have a desire for righteousness and judgment. We do. If you've ever seen a bully working, if you can remember those days in the schoolyard where you watched a wrong being perpetrated and you thought in your heart, you see it in kids today. Somebody needs to stand up to them. Somebody needs to stop that. That is part of the image of God in which we are created where we long for justice. When you read of crimes that are per 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 perpetuated, <laughs> that are done, and you wonder, will, will the criminal be brought to justice? Somebody needs to stop that. That's part of the image of God. You desire justice. Now, if you and I, in our frailty, in our sinfulness, see that there are wrongs that need to be righted, why do we think that God would not see the wrongs of creation and take action to right them? In fact, that's one of the reasons for joy. You recognize that one of the reasons for joy in the Scriptures is because God is a judge? I'm going to skip a slide or two here, Elton, so be on your toes. I want you to move past the next slide and go to the slide from Psalm. There we go. Listen to this. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. 
Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. That's a picture of celebration. That is creation rejoicing at God. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. Creation will rejoice at the coming of God. But why? Look at what I have underlined. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The psalmist is saying creation rejoices because God will right the wrongs that our sin has brought into the world. So rather than running away from the concept of judgment and wrath, the psalmist looks at it and says that is when God will set wrongs to right. And that is what takes place here. Notice in verse 11, he says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Now, earlier, when heaven was open, God, or the voice from the throne, spoke to John and said, Come up here, and I'll show you. Now, heaven is open for the world to see. There is no clandestine Christ here. There is no secret Savior. This is Jesus being revealed in his totality, and is the Jesus who is the victor over all the oppressors, over all the wrongs of the world. He is on a white horse. Now, we know that this is an image, a symbol, because Jesus did not ascend to heaven on a horse. Remember, he ascended into heaven bodily, and the angel appeared to the disciples and said, This Jesus Christ, whom you see going up, he will return in like manner. So this is communicating a truth to us. Jesus Christ will return, and the forces of Babylon, the forces of Rome, the forces of evil, the forces of greed, the forces of, of sexual immorality that are arrayed against him will not stand. He is not entering the world on a donkey this time. He's coming as the victor. And notice he is faithful and true. He is true to his word to judge the wicked, and he is faithful to the saints who have cried out to him. In a few chapters, we'll get to that wonderful passage where it says he will wipe away all tears. That's part and partial of the image being drawn here. For every prayer that has been prayed, that has said, God, how long will the church suffer? For every prayer that has been lifted up for a Christian who has suffered under the oppressor's hand, choosing to follow Christ rather than give up his faith and just live life, this is the answer to that prayer. For every prayer that we have lifted up in the midst of adversity, where we have said, how long, O Lord, must we suffer? This is the answer to that prayer. For every time you have stood by a bedside and you have wept praying, Lord, bring healing, here is the answer to that prayer. Here is the God who vindicates, and he is faithful and true, and he comes in righteousness. In fact, he judges and makes war in righteous Righteousness. Now, I want to challenge you in your understanding of righteousness a little bit. Often we think of righteousness as just being good. There's nothing wrong with that definition except that to me it doesn't go deep enough. I believe that in the scripture righteousness is seen as an active power. It is the power to set things right. Righteousness is not a passive state. It is an active state where that when God judges and he makes war, he is doing it to make things right. He is rectifying the wrongs. And don't doubt his authority to do that. His eyes are like a flame of fire. See, he has the authority to do it because one, his eyes penetrate and see how things really are. Have you ever met someone that has that gaze 
You know, they'll just look at you. By the look in their eyes, you can tell they're looking right through you. My wife has that gaze. Did you eat that donut? What? There's no hiding from it. Parents, you have the gaze. That's what's being referred to here. That gaze that says no matter where you have run to, you can't hide. The fire of his eyes melts away any pretense. There's no hiding. The fire of his eyes melts away the alibis that we would give. There's no excuses. His eyes see the reality of the situation where we may want to blame. Well, it's because of this that I chose to go down this path. And he comes back and he says, no, you chose to go down that path because that's what you wanted to do. This is the eyes of the Savior. And notice what else. He has, he has many diadems. So two, two bases for his authority. He sees and he is the true king. Now keep this in mind, this idea of diadems. These are crowns. These are, are jeweled crowns that represent authority and power. The beast we read earlier in Revelation 13 has tried to imitate that, pa that power. Revelation 13, it says this beast rises up from the oceans, and this beast has seven heads and horns, and on the horns he has ten crowns. It's where the beast is trying to do its best to convince that it's the Savior, that it's the true king, that it's the ruler, that we should give in and follow it in its, in its mutiny and its rebellion against God. But here we see that Jesus has many diadems. There's no number on them. He is the one true authority. He has no fake, no pretense. And this is where we need wisdom. Because, remember, the beast is that culture, it's that society, it's a system, often represented by a person, that will try to lead us away from God. And he always tries to imitate. You know, imitations are cheap. Now, Elton, we're going to go back on the slides. Look at these pictures. These pictures show the danger of cheap imitations. Up on the left, what's the symbol at the very top? The swoosh. What does that represent? No, no, no. It represents Nire. It's a cheap imitation. Many of you, like me, are coffee drinkers. Don't you just love sometimes a, if you can take out a loan from the bank, a good cup of coffee from Starbucks? You know, if you can get that line of credit to get a cappuccino. How about something from Sunbucks? KFC, the gospel bird. Fried chicken. Mouth, oh man. Give me some of those original herbs and spices. Or you can go to KLC. It's not the same, is it? Looks like it. But it's not. Now Jesus comes and he blows away all pretense, all the imaginations of the evil one who says, I am the king of every culture that rises up to say, your salvation is found in me. And we live in a society that tells us the pleasure principle. That's where your salvation is found. Jesus says, no, I am the king. In our culture that says wealth, money, that's your salvation. Your salvation is found in your bank account. Jesus says, no, your wealth means nothing. I am the king. I am the authority. He shows up with many crowns. Notice something else that's interesting. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. You ever notice there's a power in the name, in a name? 
When you know the name of something, you have a certain level of control. Now think of it as a parent. You know, I've got three children. And I can get their names straight because I found as I get older, I get mixed up. But like most kids and like me, they know when I use the full name, it's not good. Sue Ellen, Doris Herod, Samuel Mark, Emma Mary Elizabeth. Or my daddy would say to me, Mark Willard, do you get here? He had me at Mark. He didn't even throw in the Willard. Because I knew there was an authority. Now, when it says here that Jesus has a name that no one knows but himself, it should cause us to question something. Because look, in verse 13, we're told his name. He's called the Word of God. Look on down to um, verse 16. On his robe and his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So why does this tell us he has a name that no one knows but himself? And then we're told two names that he goes by, as well as the description of him being faithful and true. I believe it's this. One, it's a reminder that no one controls Jesus. He's the authority. If the name is power, he alone has power. It reminds us, too, there is more of Jesus to know than you and I could ever know. And what we know of him is what he has chosen to reveal of himself to us. Listen, we don't figure out Jesus. He reveals himself to us. How do we know he is the Word of God? It's because he has told us. How do we know he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords? He has revealed it. He is God and we are not. And the fact is that because he has a name that no one knows but him, we are reminded that he is not our servant. We are his. We are reminded that he is the one in control and we are humbled before him. And you see this interesting picture. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now wait a minute. This is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He's coming as the victor. The battle has not been fought, so why does his robe have blood on it? The only answer in my mind can be this. Because he comes as the one who died on our behalf. He comes as the judge who has suffered the sentence. He comes on the authority of his crucifixion and his resurrection. How do we know his bona fides as judge? Well, he could list out, well, I am the creator, therefore I have a right to judge. And we would say, yes, you do. He could say, I am the sustainer. I sustain life. I have the right to judge life. And we could say, yes, you do. But here he comes draped in something that reminds us that he is the crucified Lord and the risen Savior. And based upon that, because of his great love, he says, here am I with the right and the authority to judge. And the amazing thing is, he's not alone. Verse 14, he comes with the armies of heaven. Now notice how this army is clothed. I've never seen an army dressed like this. There's no battle gear, there's no helmet, there's no shield, there's no body armor. They're wearing linen. Linen doesn't stop an arrow. Linen won't stop a bullet. Until we're reminded that this army arrayed in fine linen has been described before. Look down to verse 8 in chapter 19. 
the description of the bride of Christ. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The armies of heaven are the saints who stand with Jesus in his victory. But the amazing thing is, the army doesn't fight. Did you get that? We're the army that doesn't have to fight. The victor has won. And it is in Jesus. And notice how he wins. He is the Word of God. This Word of God is used four times in Revelation, and it's always in association with the testimony of Jesus. So it is the proclamation, I believe, of the gospel by which he stands, by which he slays to say that he is God and he reigns. Because notice, in verse 13, he is the Word of God. In verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down the nations and to rule over them. We see again in verse 21, the rest who were in rebellion against him were slain by the sword that came from his mouth. One word utterly destroys the enemies of God. One word. So we stand in victory with Christ who speaks victoriously over all things. He is the victory. And so we stand with him in this. And we stand in hope that indeed he will right the wrongs of the world and put an end to the mutiny that has occurred. I use the word mutiny intentionally. A mutiny is open rebellion against proper authorities. That's the picture of sin. Now, this is where it really hits home. When we struggle with the wrath of God and the love of God, and I use an illustration like I did earlier, where you have a person that commits horrendous evils, we can step back and say, yeah, I can see where the wrath of God would come against them. But what about my neighbor? He's a good guy. He and his wife are kind. They give money to help. They give to the March of Dimes. They don't go to church. Will they face the wrath of God? I mean, they, they're good people. That's where we have to understand that mutiny against God means the rejection of his authority. It's not an issue of are they good people or not. It's an issue of recognizing and submitting to God's authority. And if we are in rebellion against God's authority by living life on our own terms, doing what we want, shaking our fist, we stand under his judgment also. Because the truth is, we can put on the picture. We can be like that four-year-old who refused to go into the car seat. And finally their parents applied enough force and got them into the seat and buckled up and when the dad sat behind the driver's seat and took a deep breath, he heard his child, whom he had just buckled in, say, I may be sitting on the outside, but on the inside, I'm still standing. Often that's our conformity. We do what appears right, but inside, we shake our fist at God. That's where the eyes of Jesus pierce through us and see the reality. And that's why this picture in verses 17 through 21 is so shocking. Notice the angel stands in the sun and he calls out, Gather for the great supper of God. This is in contrast to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Because notice what's served. 
the flesh of kings, captains, mighty men, horses, riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slaves, small and great. We find out a little bit later that it is all those who have thrown in their lot with the beast and the false prophet, those forces that would lead us away from God, both small and great. Stand underneath the judgment of God. You see, we must understand that we too, we too will stand before God. And the question will become, how will we fare on that day? There is no good ending for those who rebel against God. None. You can read it here. The powers that be, the captains, the kings, the mighty men, they end up dead. What about the, the small, the powerless, who nevertheless rebelled against God? They stand under His judgment. Verse 21, The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of Him who was sitting on the, the horse. And all the birds were gorged on their flesh. It's a graphic image of being cursed. Dying in the vultures eating your remains. And he's saying that is the end of rebellion against God. It doesn't end well. Now for believers reading this, for us as well as the first readers, there are two things to take away from this. First, it's a reminder to persevere. God will right the wrongs. The second thing is this. It's a warning. It's a warning to end your rebellion against God now by repenting. It's a warning to turn to Christ now. So you don't have to face the judgment that will indeed come one day. So the question comes, what will we do with the warning? We often don't do very well with warnings. The April of 2011 there was a series of warnings that went out all across our area. The evening sky had turned as black as midnight. There were thunderstorms. There was hail. There were tornadoes. The entire area was not just under a tornado watch, but a warning. And I could remember as the night went on and I was watching the, the forecast, the weather people, and they were getting excited. They were like, man, this is horrible, but man, this is great because as a weather person, I may never see this again. Look at this. You've got to take shelter. And I remember hearing the thunder. And Jody and I said, we've got to get the kids. So we got the kids up. We went down to our lowest level, cleared out the closet, got them in, and I brought a mattress down, and we got under the mattress just in case. When the warning came, you had to make a decision. Now, we were trusting that if a tornado came by, the mattress would protect us. Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't, but we did what we could to protect. There is only one thing that will protect you on this day, and that is being covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, he died on the cross and bore the wrath of God. He took the punishment that the beast and the false prophet deserve, and all who throw in their lot with him will one day receive. 
But for all who will believe in him and confess him as Lord and repent from their sins, he says, instead of seeing Jesus as the warrior, you will see him as the lamb. So the question is, how will you respond to this warning? Will you know Jesus as the lamb or as the lion? As the one who brings salvation or as the warrior? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.